0: Excellent. I'm always excited to uh, uh, be a part of discussing any healthcare fraud related um, items with you. And uh, what we're going to do on this episode, this is uh, episode three, we're going to do a series. So this will be part one of the series. Um, the series will be uh, the good the bad and the ugly of investigations. So today is part one. In part one, we're gonna talk about data mining. Uh, Over Mm -hmm. the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, we'll add a part two, which will be on uh, record reviews, a part three on requesting refunds, and part four on uh, referrals. So we're gonna go through these different topics and uh, hopefully everyone learns something and enjoys uh, what we're gonna discuss today. So you ready to get started?
1: I'm ready. I love talking about data mining.
0: I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so when we talk about data mining, of course, um, you know, being involved as um, employees of healthcare fraud shield, uh, you know it's it's important just to to take a step back as um, regarding mm-hmm. what we do. So we do have a, a suite of products um, that's fully integrated where we look at um, things prepayment, postpayment. Um, both medical and pharmacy uh, analytics. We have a reporting tool. We also have um, an artificial intelligence tool as well as a case management tool. So having um, a system like that where you've got all these different pieces that communicate, they're on the same platform, they work together, of course, make data mining you know, a little bit easier for, uh, for folks um, that are that are trying to, you know, find things efficiently and quickly with all the detail needed to to move forward um, with potential audits and investigations. So, um, you know, those, those are definitely tools that are that are worthwhile, uh, if you are able to, to find a fraud, waste and abuse vendor. Uh, but on top of that, you know, Typically, there are other things that folks often need to move forward. Whether um, you have a software system or not, you know, oftentimes you might need to supplement with Access or Excel. Um, so, you know, making sure that you've got, um, you know, just whatever you need to do your job. So I know, um, Kate, you and I both uh, use uh, our solution, uh, you know, every single day. And sometimes we will supplement, you know, with other with other tools um, if needed. But, you know, I know our our system really does some some fabulous things on on identification um, for fraud, waste and abuse schemes. So uh, what are what are your favorite um, areas uh, of the tools that you use?
1: Well, I think, you know, my favorite. My favorite is the code analysis report where we can plug in a procedure code and look at the top billers of that code uh, sort of by specialty, um, by, you know, d- other different parameters. But I love the coding tool because I think that gives you a snapshot really quickly of if a provider is an outlier compared to, compared to his peers. So, you know, favorites, I just like to plug in the highest level EM visits, see who the outliers are. We might have something like a chiropractor billing all the highest level E and M visits, which would not be expected. Um, so I, I love our code analysis tool, but the whole software is great. And it's probably one of my favorite parts of my job is just going in there and digging in the data. So, but I think, what we, yeah, I think what we always have to remember is, you know, we, like we always say junk in junk out, you have to have really good data to make it valuable really valuable and to find good leads. So, and I think some payers struggle with that, getting good data. So we'll see, have important fields that are missing or they're inaccurate. So I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with seeing a lot of junk in the data.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge. Um, we take data integrity very seriously and, um, you know, we'll go above and beyond to, you know, make... Um, make the data as clean as possible you know of course it's based on what what folks send us um but yes i mean we'll see um, issues sometimes with duplicates or with adjustments uh i've seen um issues with uh provider specialty is another one just having an accurate um indicator of the type of provider you're working with that's another important field since it's something that um is often used, not not solely, but often used in, in comparing provider behavior uh, as well. So, uh, yep, d- junk in, junk out. Um, but you know, even with that, uh, you know, it's important to have a have a vendor. I mean, we understand the data, so of course we're gonna we're gonna do the best job we can to make sure that the the client's data that is sent to us is as clean as possible. So, yep, there are some challenges for sure.
1: Right. And I think it's also important to have a good c- coding tool, either built into the system or on the side, like a a PC coder, where you can get additional information about the code. So definitely something that should be in every investigator's toolbox with the appropriate years, you know, go back um, a number of years with the um, coding information, depending on what years you're looking at in the data. Absolutely. And in fact, we might even do another... uh... Episode
0: down the road on the the code changes for twenty twenty one, especially as it relates to evaluation and management coding. There are some some major changes right. next year, so yep, that should be interesting. To, yeah. yeah,
1: definitely,
0: definitely. Yep. Uh, so I I know one of the things um, I know you and I have talked about over the years is uh, you know what makes a good investigator. What makes a you know um, a good employee in in this in this industry. So what has been your experience uh, over the years? Yeah, what
1: we used in our SIU team was nurse coders and AFIs. So the combination of a nurse coder with her AFI certification, her, his AFI certification, in my mind, that was our best combination, our gold standard, uh, because they understand the medical terminology and the procedures uh, and the coding. So it's all the skills wrapped up in one. But with that said, I had nurse coders that were not good in data mining. They were better in record reviews. So just because they had that skill set didn't mean that they were great in finding the leads. I think it really does take a you know a special skill, you know, inquisitive, analytic mind. So and, and I think you, you did not have nurse coders. Is that correct in your SIU?
0: uh we had some over the years but not a lot um we had a variety of uh of staff it was really a mixture of people with investigative experience um and then also people with data and and even just research experience with um over the years we did actually add on one or two um nurse c- coders uh but i think you know looking back i mean we've seen a shift in this industry i would definitely say there's a lot more nurse coders, um, at least from what I've seen, than I've ever seen before. Um, you know, so I do think that there's value in having that clinical knowledge. Um, but I also think that there's a, there's a good balance in having people of all kinds of backgrounds. You know, we always say you and I work, uh, work really well together. I don't have the clinical background but I have a strong data background, um, you know. So I think between um, sometimes not necessarily having it all in, in one employee skill set, although that's always um, great, but having a nice combination of, of folks that complement one another and work well together uh, to to kind of get where you
1: need yep, to go. I agree. Yep. So yeah. So let's let's talk I, into actual data mining, and when you're looking in the system, like uh, you know, we can look at. As I explained it to a a new employee who I'm training, you know, how we look at the data in different ways that the system will show us it by provider, by member, by group, by scheme, uh, by alert. So we have many different ways to identify leads in the system. Um, And in this part, we thought we would just talk about some of the ways that we some examples of things that we found some some of our favorite schemes and then we'll go into some of the the pits and uh, perils and pitfalls of of looking at the data and some mistakes that you can made or things that we've seen along the way. So t- tell me Karen what is your favorite uh, what do you look at when you look at groups employer groups. Sure um, you know a couple of things so keeping in mind um,
0: the word group can be uh, interpreted differently depending on the client. So some of our clients who have commercial lines of business, they'll 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 look at it as employer groups. Um, some clients maybe are just government, um, you know, Medicaid, Medicare. So they might uh, group their data differently or, or use the grouping features a little bit differently. Um, but when I look at group information, sometimes what you'll see is everyone in the same group, um, either going to the same. Provider, Or we've seen scenarios um, over the years where you've got uh, an, an employer group who hires a number of people with a particular illness and then bills for them. Um, or sometimes the people actually have the illness and sometimes they don't. Um, But it's maybe a pharmacy who specializes in a certain type of medication. And then all of a sudden, all of their employees have that illness that requires that medication. So looking for groups um, and patterns, uh, you know, potential collusion between the group and the provider and or a group and a pharmacy, things along those lines um, can be can be very interesting. And and we've uncovered a lot of interesting things in that area. Yeah,
1: I I had a group case reminds me I had a, a case where it was a car dealership. And on several dates of service, they had massive billings by one provider who was billing the food allergy testing. So they tested everybody in the car dealership for the food allergies, which is, as we know, typically non-covered by commercial plans. So we went back to read their contract. Do they have some special special, uh, clause in the contract saying that this is... Acceptable, so um, in this case it wasn't, so that was that was a good catch by looking at the groups so yeah, yeah and then by providers I and I think a lot of us tend to look at some of the troublesome specialties first, so we'll look at ones that are are known to live on the edge a little bit and data mine there, but of course don't exclude any of the specialties but um Yep, so we sort it that way. Anything you want to add about providers, looking at the providers?
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: sure. Yeah,
0: some, some of the things that, uh, you know, I would tend to focus on are, um, you know, obviously, when we look at a solution like the, you know, fraud, waste and abuse solution, we've got alerts that are, are monitoring things that we know we should be looking at. And then of course we've got kind of the AI side where it's things that we maybe we don't know we should be looking at, and that kind of points it out to us. So if I'm if I'm kind of taking a step and um, towards the things I know I should monitor, you know, there's some typical things where uh, you might want to take a look at providers that are, you know, uh, an impossible day. You know, how many if you are if you are a certain type of specialty, you know, how many patients can you possibly see in a day, and and things that don't make sense. You know, if you are, let's say, um, you know, behavioral health and you are doing psychotherapy you know those services have uh, typically a time component to them you know whether you're seeing patients for 45 minutes or 60 minutes there's only so many of those you can do in a day so it becomes clear when those types of um, specialties start to become outliers when they're billing for things that don't make sense they can't possibly work that many hours in a given day um, so there's some some typical things that you can always
1: dive into right away yeah, yeah. and then members, When we look at members, I like to look at one of my favorite things to look at is the ER shopper. So we're looking at members who have multiple emergency room visits per month or they visit multiple different emergency rooms. And I love digging into those. It seems like it's very prevalent where they're shopping for uh, narcotics. So that's one of my favorite areas to look at in the member Number sure. Hey, Why don't you explain yeah. the uh, opioid the alert we have for the opioids the dose? Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah, yep. Yeah. We've got uh, we've got several alerts that do look at different types of medications, but one in particular where we do look for um, uh, what what's called morphine equivalency. So any drug um, with an opioid content, there's a, a conversion factor. That you can um, figure out, you know, uh, on a given day, what's that equivalency? So there are different thresholds. Um, some some organizations look at ninety milligrams a day. Some look at one hundred and twenty. Some look at one hundred and fifty. But you know, the idea is these patients are getting um, you know medication with those ingredients that's excessive, or maybe they're getting it for an extended period of time. And the, and the regimen has not changed, which can also be an indicator um, that something may not be right. Um, so it's important to take
1: a look at, at those right. as well. Yeah, then we can move into our schemes or alerts. And how many how many alerts do we have in our system now, Karen? Do you know? Uh, Is, yeah, it's over a thousand. thousand. Wow. wow. Over, yeah. yeah <laughs> when we started, how many years ago, we had, what, 300 maybe yeah something like that. Yeah, yep that's amazing, <laughs> yeah, so right. It's great. So We have quite a number of alerts to look at, and it's fun digging into those. Uh, interesting i I looked at an alert last week for one of our clients uh, that just popped up and something that I had not even uh, noticed before that we even had an alert for it, but it popped up that we have an alert for excessive uh, vaccinations per member. So typically like your measles, mum, rubella, your HPV, your meningitis, those are just a a short series, one or two uh, vaccinations. And this alert looks for patients who have received more than what you would expect. And when I looked at this provider, every time a patient came in, and it was usually young adults, would come in for maybe upper respiratory infection, uh, neck pain, just your typical respiratory infections, the doctor would give them a vaccination. So they might be billed the MMR, the HPV, and a meningitis every visit they came in. And they might come in every month, every couple months. Uh, And this is something we just looked at recently, so we're not sure how this is all gonna play out, but they would get, and this was billed to Medicaid population members, and it was hundreds of dollars that Medicaid would pay for each one of these visits. And and I think the telltale red flag was if a patient's coming in for an upper respiratory infection, you're not going to give them a vaccin- an, an MMR vaccination. That would be a contraindicated for that. So uh, very interesting. So I, that was an interesting alert that I saw pop up. Mm. Yeah, and, and you just
0: made me think about something else. You know, so we mentioned before about, you know, the different tools to, to data mine. That's a great example of why it's important to not only include um, advanced analytics, you know, AI and, and machine learning, um, but also to continue to monitor things we know we should monitor. So to your point, you know, I don't recall how many years ago we, we knew to, to monitor that, but sometimes schemes are cyclical. So you don't want to ignore things that you know could be a problem or have been a problem because oftentimes they do come back True. and resurface. Um, yep, to so, keep them in yep. the system.
1: So, yeah. Absolutely. So let's move on to some things, some, uh, some uh, pitfalls that we've had with our data, some mistakes that we've made with some of reviews of the data that have left to overpayments that weren't correct so, I think we all have some of these stories that didn't end so well, or they were a little embarrassment to our plan. Things I think about when I have younger investigators who are doing analyzing the data, and I'll say, Well, did you look for the pre authorizations on file? So, things that they wouldn't have th- thought about that I have past experience where it hasn't worked out so well that we've kind of learned the hard way. So, and that brings me to, to pre authorizations. So, uh, maybe the patients have a bariatric surgery and, and we're wondering, you know, was this appropriate Whether well, there could be a pre-authorization on file many times in the claims data, you'll, there could be an indicator that there was a pre-authorization on file, not saying that it still could be incorrect because they could have gotten a preauthorization for one thing and the doctor billed another thing. So, but if there is a pre-auth on file, then the plan should have that information somewhere that the investigator would be able to, to pull. So, that's been a troublesome spot. You want to make sure that there, uh, if there is a pre-authorization on file, that you make sure you consider that information. So, have you had an issue with that at all or any experiences where you should have looked at that and maybe didn't? Absolutely. Um, I've seen that a lot with. Um, Uh,
0: especially areas such as cardiology and things along those lines where they were preauthorized for a certain type of service and then maybe received something else. Um, The other challenge with the preauthorization file kind of along our data mining theme is oftentimes that data is housed somewhere completely different from the claims information. So, right. uh, you know, for folks who are looking solely at that claims data, um, if you are able to incorporate the, the pre-auth data, um, you know, whether it's the auth number, whether the auth was um, authorized or not, and the codes that were specifically authorized, that's, that can be really, really helpful because there is often a mismatch between what they apply for pre-auth and um, what they certify, um, you know, right. uh, versus and what they the ba- actually at did. At the very
1: minimum, the SIU should request the list of all the codes or all the services that require pre-authorization and you should have that, you know, saved electronically, uh, definitely have the pre auth list. So, yeah. So then another area that I think uh, some folks can overlook is if the claim was manually processed. So uh, our investigators say, oh, I found this, you know, th- this is being paid. I don't think it should be a high dollar claim or whatever it is. And then I'll, I'll look in the addi- at the additional claim information to see how it was processed. And this can be an area that investigators will forget to look at. And I'll say, oh, well, look, it says that additional information was provided. So, the- and it was manually processed. So Not to say that it's necessarily correct, but there was an internal look at this claim. So take it another step, see what additional information was provided, or that may be enough to say, you know what, that makes sense. I'm moving on and this really isn't a viable lead. So definitely look to see how the claim was processed if you have that ability. Did it go through multiple levels to get paid? And was there and uh, was there lag time from the time the claim was received to the time was that it was paid? If there's a lag time, then that could indicate that there was an, a manual review of that claim and maybe additional information was provided. Anything? Uh, yeah, additional to add on that, Karen. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you can, um, you know, there are ways to uh, analyze the manually processed claims. I highly encourage that. Um, there's often just, you know, human error, of course, although uh, there have been scenarios where, um, you know, there, there could even be potential collusion um, from that regard as well. Uh, but you can certainly analyze the data, assuming that, you know, you've, you've got those pieces of information, those data attributes. There are ways to look at the claims that are manually processed. Uh, and that's another reason why taking um, that an AI approach in combination with a rules approach, you have rules that will monitor uh, things that, that your system should have caught. So if you know that you've got edits in the system that should do X, Y, Z, you should still have rules that monitor that just for that reason in case things get overlooked and manually, um, you know, overwritten that maybe shouldn't have. And Kate, you may recall, we actually had a scenario years ago um, with a client millions to the tune of millions of dollars, where there was an edit that was mm. accidentally turned off. Um, so, you know, again, just having those, those pieces in place to monitor what you know you should be monitoring, whether it's the manual processing or, you okay. know, or edits. Yeah. It's very And important. then claim
1: adjustments, claim adjustments are can be really troublesome, cause cause some uh, heartburn in the system, Uh, especially we've noticed that with new clients, that the adjustments have to be in the system properly. You don't want to count them twice. You want to recognize them. So, And you could probably speak to more claim adjustments because I think you see it at the earlier side than I see when the data is all ready to go. So do you have some comments about claim adjustments in your... Any headache headaches you've had? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's important to um, when you're ingesting data to understand the claim adjustment. So I I can tell you that um, every p- payer is different. And that's also one of the challenges in this industry. There's no uh, necessary necessarily consistency, uh, you know, but some have simple claim adjustments, um, simple claim replacements that they, uh, you know, it's a whole claim replacement. Some get a little more complicated. Um, so to understand the different iterations, um, you know, to go through that, to be able to account for the data and make sure that uh, our our solution doesn't identify things that are false positives. You know, I've seen some where there's upwards of, you know, two dozen different variations that we need to account for. So it takes a while and and an understanding of claims and data and adjustments to to get to that point. But again, that data integrity is very important. And then move into
1: duplicates and duplicate claims sometimes are not truly duplicates. So I've seen that issue as well with some of the newer investigators who will look at claims and not recognize that it's not a true duplicate and you don't want to count it twice. So duplicates really need to be sorted through to make sure that they are in fact a duplicate. So sometimes it's, it's just a secondary insurance payment and it can, you know, they've uh, done two payments on the claim. The patient, the patient has two insurance plans and one pays part. And then the other pays the other part, and it could look like a duplicate when, in fact, it isn't. So um, duplicates can be tricky.
0: I I would say one of the most common um, uh, errors in patient complaints is thinking that they were billed twice or that, that the insurance company was billed twice for things like radiology. When they saw a technical component and a professional component. And even true with new investigators, if they're not um, well-versed in coding, they might uh, accidentally identify sure, that yeah, as a duplicate as anesthesiology well.
1: Anesthesiology too, because you can have the nurse and the anesthetist and the anesthesiologist both billing the code. So, um, yep. So duplicates, I'm always skeptical when an investigator will come and say, look at all these duplicates. My first thought is they're not duplicates because usually duplicate payments are going to get caught in the system. So I'm skeptical at first. So it's really got to prove itself to me that it's a a true duplicate. So um, uh, watch the age of your claims. Are they past your window recovery? So do keep an eye on that. And with that said, Uh, we've seen, this is, think we have a great case. The investigator will come and say, look at this, look at all these things are incorrect. This is a great lead. And then I'll say, well, look, they haven't billed in the last six, six months. The provider does not even have an open practice anymore. So do you know, make sure that your data is current, that the scheme is current. If it's not, is it still recoverable? Have they corrected their billing behavior. Maybe they're in the process of returning money through another department in your company. So definitely look at the age of your claims and the window, the recovery window. In fact, uh, just uh, to add a further comment to that, we had a provider, uh, typically we did 18 months recovery and we sent the provider an overpayment for the 18 months worth of incorrectly paid claims. And he came back to us and said, oh, well, didn't you read my contract? Because I have a agreement that you can only recover back to 12 months. So that was a little embarrassing for us. We had to, you know, take off the additional uh, six months worth of claims, uh, you know, to recover. Uh, So do check your contract as well, because there could be a special provision in something like that. So a little embarrassing for our, you know, for our unit. Yeah, the contract is key. Um, we've.
0: Uh, it's also uh, probably beneficial for anyone who works in in a special investigative unit or payment integrity area to work closely with their provider relations and network departments, especially when it comes time for. Um, contract negotiation—they uh, should all be aware of anything that's been going on with various um, provider groups or potential language uh, that's being proposed for a new contract that could impact the um, investigative or audit area. Uh, we had one that um, tried—they they didn't succeed, but tried to get into a contract. The wordings that the words that um, the exact phrasing was: we could not be audited mm-hmm. until now, until the end of time. So they wanted to just be able to bill whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Um, and that didn't hey, fly I very remember, well.
1: Karen, we had, talking about contracts, we had a, what we thought was a great lead for one of our clients. We had a physical therapy provider that only billed 99215. That was it. And we thought, oh my gosh, this is, look at this. This is so incorrect. You're not billing any physical therapy codes. And everybody has a 99215. And we went back to our client and, and they pulled the contract and they said, Oh no, they have a special deal with us that that's the service that they only service that they report nine nine We're just paying them a set rate per member visit. And so always check the contract. If we hadn't, if you know, if that was our SIU, we hadn't checked the contract and we went back and said, this is all, you know, incorrect. So, um, very important is one of the first steps in an investigation is to take a look at the contract. So, uh, absolutely,
0: that should be one of the first things that you request uh, as well. My m- one of my I mean we've had we have many stories, but the one that always um, sticks out in my mind is uh, we had a, a group where they were allowed to pick and choose the codes that they submitted um, for the service based on the qualifications of their employees. So if they were an LPM, they could bill one code. If they were an RN, they could bill another code, regardless of what service they performed. So when you looked at the medical records, um, the service didn't match the code, but the <laughs> contract crazy. said they could do it. So again, be, be mindful. Yeah, absolutely. Be mindful of all of the contract, um, uh, inclusion, mm-hmm. um, and, and just the and final clauses. thing that I
1: wanted to add is just make sure you check and see what information you have in-house as you're developing your leads. Are there already some medical records that you can take a peek at? If, if it's one of these cases where there's a pre-authorization, you may already have some information in-house. Um, letters of medical necessity for DME equipment, any correspondence from the provider. So, you know, don't forget about your in-house sources and, and I know some payers it's more difficult to round up that information than it is with other payers, but always good to see what you have in-house as you're developing your leads.
0: Absolutely. And I know in our in our next uh, episode, when we talk a little bit about medical records and we can include some some other fun uh, experiences that we've had with other types of information from, you know, letters, faxes, uh, you know, customer service calls. There's there's a ton of things that you want to take a look at in-house that you may not necessarily consider um, from the get go. So yeah. things to keep in mind so. for the future. All right. Well, Anything else that you'd like to conclude no, no. Uh, Good for conversation. today's uh, episode? So I look
1: forward to the next one.
0: Thanks. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Kate, for your time. And thanks for uh, our audience for listening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this one. And we look forward to, to doing more. So thanks, everyone. Thanks. And, and we'll uh, we'll be back. Thanks, Kate.